You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zayo Mednik and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. If you are enjoying this podcast or you have been a listener with us for a long time, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting platform you use. Really helps to spread the word about the podcast and I really appreciate it every time I see one. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, eh, I'm sure somebody else will do it. No, nobody else will. It's you. So take a second and rate and review. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. For most of us, it's a known that global warming and climate change are real and problematic. Yet at the same time, despite society's apparent concern at large, the issue has persisted for decades and in many regards has only gotten worse. So how bad is climate change? And how concerned do we need to be? And for as much as we try to be optimistic, are we perhaps past the point of no return? If that's the case, why even care about climate change at all? Why not just accept that the damage is done and that the best we can do is mitigate it, as opposed to saving our planet. Or is that just pure nihilism? I'm joined today by Quinn Emmett. Quinn is the founder, writer, and host at Important Not Important, Science for People Who Give a Shit. His critically acclaimed newsletter, podcast, and coaching help you think deeply and act decisively about the world's make-or-break science news, from climate to COVID, heat to hunger, and agriculture to AI ethics. His work is consumed on a weekly basis by senators and scientists, investors and doctors, students and CEOs, best-selling fiction writers, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. Quinn has spent the past two decades working, advising, and investing across a wide spectrum of business, media, politics, activism, and philanthropy. He's been nominated for six Webbies, including Best Newsletter, Best Podcast Host, and Best Science Show, and lost one of those to Malala, at which point his wife told him to retire. He had peaked. She was almost certainly correct, but here we are. And here we are today. Quinn Emmett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I am so excited to be here. It is a it is a delight to be on the other side. Sometimes it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, I find. I find I go into it with a totally different mentality when I'm the guest on another podcast. I'm like a little more nervous, but also the nerves are off a little bit because I'm not guiding the conversation. So I'm I'm happy for you to be on the other side. <laughs> it's It's really nice. I will say, and I don't think I need to necessarily do that, for this conversation, but basically what we cover is essentially the make or break stuff that that is even loosely science related, you know, so that is everything from climate, which, as you know, is 400 different things and all connected in some way to public health and COVID and biotech and, and food and water and all that different stuff. The point is, again, you asked me to be here, so I'm assuming uh, this is OK, but to your point of feeling a little nervous being on the other side of a conversation. My wife has joked in the past that I have the unique ability to be the bummer in any, in any conversation, which which can be partially true. But I tried to take the note as being constructive, which is when people do ask me, how is climate going or or COVID or, or you know, antibiotics or hunger or whatever it might be, I do try to preface it and say, well, how would you like this conversation to go? Because I can give it to you straight which is 10 things can be true at once. And some of them are going to be a little tough to hear. And you might not be in the headspace to hear that or deal with it after we're done. And that is totally okay. And sometimes you're ready to go and sometimes you're not. And I'll just give you the short version or I'll just tell you the great stuff. And there's a lot of great stuff for all of these things. But that's how I kind of came to this was feeling a little more free, which is, you know, let's do this. We can cover it all. But I do try to be conscious of how I approach these things because it can be a little tough to to hear some of these things. I appreciate that preface. And for those who know me or who have listened to this podcast for a while, I can be very sarcastic. And maybe this step, this part doesn't come across in the podcast, but I can be quite nihilistic and pessimistic. So I'm all in for let's get to the let's let's cut kind of the crap and do exactly what you suggested. And I want to hear the reality and the truth of things. And I try to frame these episodes in a positive light in general, and I try to end on an optimistic note, which I think is helpful. But in the same token, I've also re-examined that. And sometimes the best conversation is just the most honest conversation where we don't need to deal with those formalities and we can just kind of go at it. Um, And I have a feeling I might be a little more nihilistic in this conversation than you. But we'll start off with kind of the state of climate change now in 2023 and where we're at. And that's a broad question, as you said, climate change means so many things. But 
in terms of heat, in terms of carbon emissions, ice levels, fires, floods, whatever you think is important. Where are we at right now in 2023 compared to where we ideally wanted to be at? How bad is the situation right now? The very short answer is, I mean, it's not great, right? It's not great. It's much warmer and still getting warmer, better word is hotter in most places where it matters than it should be. It is actually right along with most climate scientists' best predictions, frankly, from the past 25 years of where we would be given the inputs um, and the outputs, which is good. It kind of means we still have a pretty good handle on where we are when we're looking at the numbers, right? Okay. So this year will probably end up being uh, the hottest year on record overall. And that's a very broad thing. That's looking at the entire world, obviously. We're in Paris in for the 2015 uh, Paris Accords. There was this goal to try to keep things very loosely and nothing was, of course, a mandatory. Try to keep it under an additional 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, of, of warming. What's important when you think about that number and when we talk about that number is that is, again, a broad number applicable to the whole world, but it's also, you can't look at one year of warming and go, well, we've broached it. It is a sort of multi-decade measure. That is that is the important, because you know we work with averages here. There's obviously going to be fluctuations here and there, especially when we start to deal with El Nino, which is here and, and, and things like that, or things that are uh, other inputs that are unexpected. So when I say that, August is probably about 1.6 over the measurement from around the 1990s. That's where we are, which is for August, it's well above what we had hoped to keep it at all. But at the same time, we have had made some pretty incredible innovations and scaling of those innovations to the point where the predictions of where we will be in 10 and 20 and 50 years uh, are much more narrow and much lower than what we thought they would be, which is great news. Objectively, no question. We're not talking about absolutely catastrophic civilization ending stuff anymore at all. What we are still talking about is a pretty rough run of it, <laughs> to be clear. I'm sure you have heard, it's not just 1.5 or 2 or 3 degrees. Every single tenth of a degree matters because, again, that's a very broad scope. And for those to change one way or another requires, to get an average, you have things on the high end and you have things on the low end. I just want to pause there quickly because I think that's a really, really important point, what you said. When I used to hear it's gone up a degree or 1.5 degrees you said since the 90s a lot of people might say that's not so bad what's one degree and i i read something by the intergovernments the intergovernmental panel on climate change um in a book i was reading that said in the gap between 1.5 degrees and two hundreds of millions of lives were at stake so that i think is really important to pause on for a second for people to appreciate that like one degree even though it's just one degree that is a really 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 significant thing because it's easy to look and say one and a half degrees over 30 years who cares it, it it absolutely is and that is why how we standardize the uh those numbers how we measure them how we report them if if we do how we argue about them you know how we measure them historically how we measure them currently we're both getting better at all those things like i said our projections are getting more accurate and more narrow which is awesome but there's going to increasingly be more inputs that are going to drag that up a little bit or that are unexpected in certain ways like la nina finally ended at this point it was kind of a surprise but that means there's going to be a lot of variability because frankly we haven't experienced it that much and also because of El Nino is just going to make a lot of parts of the world hotter or wetter or drier that haven't been in the past six, seven years. So yes, the numbers matter, but what matters is the impacts of those numbers. And that's kind of the space that I find myself working in. And it turns out we really do the best is what is this doing to people? What is this doing to our ecosystems, 
our oceans, our forests, and all those things that both we have traditionally said support people, but in sense, the better way to look at it is those are the ecosystems that we live in an unbreakable relationship with. We are part of those. It's not a relationship with nature. We are part of that. And the sooner we realize that and start acting that way, the more we will do a better job of taking care of those things and protecting them, if not rebuilding them even better as much as we can. So what matters when we talk about where are we and where, how hot it is um, in certain places is the Arctic is warming about twice as fast as the rest of the world. That's decidedly not great for a number of reasons. Sure, there are fewer people there, but that is going to, again, tough part of the conversation. That has already instigated an enormous amount of ice loss and ice melting that is going to... I mean, it has already instigated, but start to compound sea level rise around a large part of the world. And sea level rise is unfortunately one of the things we actually can't put back in the box. So we'll talk about heating later, but sea level rise, we can't put back in the box. And if you look at the way humans have traditionally built our societies, uh, we're fairly intelligent. We climbed out of the trees and we decided we should build our our, our towns and our villages and our cities um, either or and near freshwater and near oceans. And why is that? Because easier access to trade, easier access to food from the ocean, easier access to freshwater and, and things like that. Unfortunately, we have built enormous cities in a lot of these places that are already under threat, and there's not a whole lot we can really do about those. That is really where adaptation really starts to come into play. So that is going to be tough, and the Arctic is warming twice as fast, and that is where you start to hear things about maybe we really should think about some form of quote-unquote geoengineering to reflect back to the sun in those parts, whatever it might be. Of course, these are all systems, and nothing in isolation, right, when you're talking about a system of any sort. Other places, again, already being affected. You see Indonesia is building an entirely new capital because Jakarta is going to be underwater. That is something that seems fictional. It is not anymore. They're already in that process. You see a number of airports that are near water that are just going to be unusable sometime in the next 50 years, everywhere from San Francisco to other places. You see cities like in the U.S. to be U.S.-centric for a moment, New Orleans, Charleston, Norfolk, New York, certainly Boston, that already see what is called sunny day flooding, which is the sea level rise has risen uh, enough, which frankly is just centimeters and inches in, in a lot of places. But that is enough that basic infrastructure is flooded, roads, whatever it might be, but also pipes and, and drinking water are flooded with seawater, which is not great. And that happens much more frequently without storms and without anything else that is sort of more catastrophic on whatever interval. But then you also have storms and you also have further sea level rise. So those places are places where we have to, and we're starting to think about what is the most pragmatic way to deal with this both now, but in the thinking about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, because just building seawalls is not the answer. So that is where people are already starting to be affected. Crops are already starting to be affected because it's much hotter in more places. But it also means it's more humid in a lot of places, like in India and Southeastern Asia. So that means you've got more flooding and more storms, which means crops just get wiped out. So in northern India, they might get wiped out because of heat, which means people that live uh, there, you know, substance farmers, who that means they farm to feed their families and their communities. They cannot do that anymore. Where on the other hand, in certain places, you'll see just enormous flooding that just totally wipes out crops. So we have been globalizing so much over the past 25 years that if you're not substance farmers, then you're shipping a lot of that abroad. And that is a lot of where a country in a region's exports and their GDP might come from. You can't do that anymore as much. So that is a problem in a lot of, a lot of the bread baskets. So you're starting to see countries growing things in different places if they can and trying to keep a lot of that food at home as much as they can as a national security measure. And that's true in the U.S. as well in some places. You know, the famous Florida citrus has started to move north. Georgia peaches were effectively wiped out the past two years. You see the same thing with the sort of three monocrops we grow in the U.S. and what we're doing with alfalfa and the Colorado River going down. 
a lot of these things are already impacting people and obviously already impacting ecosystems. The good news and sort of how I want to frame this conversation as much as I can is, as much as we can't put something like sea level rise back in the box, the vast majority of what we're dealing with is simply choices we are making and we can make different choices. And that is really, really, really important to understand. You outlined that very well there in terms of the different complexities and the different elements of what climate change entails, be it the heat, be it ice levels, be it flooding, be it famine and agricultural issues. And this is where I get a little nihilistic. That's more, that's easier for me to kind of get behind when I hear about wildfires, I hear about floods, I hear about people dying. And I think about the present situation and the generations that are directly beneath us, so to speak, coming of age in the next 50 years. Because those are things that I care about, obviously, as, as, a, as a human in this world. And when I think of climate change, I think a lot of people probably think about it in terms of the more existential problem of, well, the earth is going to die out, homo sapiens are going to die out, and the damage is done, and we don't want that to happen. And for me, it's more of a philosophical question. For me, that doesn't resonate as much, I guess, because I'm like, you know what, that's so distant. Most species die out, and if humans die out, that's okay. Maybe at some point people will have to stop having kids and just accept that. It doesn't sound, based on what you're saying, like we are so far gone that that needs to be the case. But do you think that for people to care more about climate change, they need to be thinking about what you just spoke about, the repercussions now, because it is more relatable in the sense that you can look on the news right now and see all the damage that's being done, as opposed to trying to pontificate philosophically about, well, this is all important because 200 years from now, I want humans to be flourishing. Yeah, so... Let's see. What's the best way to come at this? It's not going to be, our modeling is only going to get more complex with the more inputs we have, right? But at the same time, with advances like what we're seeing, starting to see in artificial intelligence, which are inflated in some ways and undercounted in others, we're just going to have a better and better shot at understanding the complexities of what we're dealing with the further we go along, right? There are always going to be outliers. There are going to be things we didn't expect or things that we didn't expect to happen quite so yet, or things that as a society and an economy and as an infrastructure, we're unprepared for, right? Usually, again, those are choices we're making. And the first choice I would really, really, really encourage people not to make, though I empathize with, is this, as they call, doomerism, which is we're fucked and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> so we might as well either spread the doomerism or just give up and live you know, a, a life of, of, of drinking and sadness and whatever it might be, I would encourage you not to do that for a variety of reasons. Life is pretty short and that's a pretty shitty way to live. You got to do your own, but it's not super helpful. Two, we're pretty social animals. I would love for that to not spread any further than it already has because it's a bummer to bring everybody else down because we need everybody on board here. And three, what we do kind of a poor job of illustrating and what I've really kind of come around to and really try to work from this idea of first principles. And what they do a poor job of applying it to is real life, right? When I think about first principles with this work, I come down to this, and I'm going to ask you this question. What are, and you can put them in order for extra credit if you want, the five things that every single person on the planet needs? No questions asked must have five things that everybody needs sort of start to finish in, I guess, if you were to order them, if you were to put them in order, in order of absolute necessity to survive, what would you say those are? Well, I like extra points, so I'll try to do it in order. Please. <laughs> Water. Okay. Food. Warmth. Maybe that goes with shelter, but I don't want to... I'm struggling for five, so maybe I'll split those up. And those are the three that come to mind. But okay. there's five. Well, so what's fun me. about the latter few, and it could be five, it could be six, is that people argue about them, and I love to argue with them about them. You did really great. First Thank of all, you. congratulations. Thank you so much. We really, really have a difficult time. Any single one of us 
it does not matter if you fly in private jets or not, or you go to an hourly job in a meatpacking plant, right? Or you're already be affected by sea level rise or a storm, whatever it might be. We cannot do without water and food in that order for a specific period of time. I'm going to ding you because you left out air, which is a tough one mm. because that is number one. You don't have air. It's a big um, ding. The, yeah, it's a big ding. That's a, that's a tough loss. We're going to come back to it. It's okay. But here's the thing and what's beautiful truly about you leaving that out is we take it for granted. Exactly. Right. And we take it for granted in so many ways that are so obvious and that makes them very frustrating. But what is great about them being obvious and so frustrating is it because they are choices we are making because it doesn't have to be this way. What we have done over the effectively the past 200 years or so is we have taken air, water, food, like you said, warmth or shelter, and then health or wellness, power for lights and cooking and transportation, and then education, and especially for girls. We've taken these things that are in that order, essential to every one of us and to our society as a baseline and to flourish. And what we've done is because of money, which I like money, but because of greed, we have chosen to make for each of those the quality of them and access to them much more difficult, expensive, and complicated. And that is the first principles, really the root cause of everything we are talking about here. So you've asked sort of one of these things of like, if you're a nihilist or you're a doomerism, how can we get people to care more? One of the things that people talk about is stop talking about 1.5 degrees, stop talking about emissions, talk about pollution, right? And this is where I come back to air. Because if we can use the, the word pollution very loosely, on the one hand, there is the pollution that comes from sort of our major sources that you think of. And that is tailpipes of automobiles of every kind. And it comes from agricultural sources and factories, right? So- it also comes from the tires, from cars, construction, all that different stuff. And that's usually measured in some form of particular matter, PM2. So we know now as a fact that the combination of all of those different sources kills 8 million people a year, straight up Wow! across the world. Okay. Those are things we do not have to do. We can choose, we can change to electric cars, which are an imperfect solution for the grander crisis, but they are measurably better because they do not at least have tailpipe emissions like gasoline or diesel vehicles do, right? We still have tires, we'll deal with that, we'll get to it. We can deal with factory emissions. We can deal with agricultural emissions through another huge variety of, of, of ways of doing it. We can deal with uh, the way we actually clean the air of those things by stopping deforestation, among other things, replanting mangroves and protecting them. We can make our soil better so that it can start to absorb more of this again. The point is, none of those 8 million people have to die now in 2023. I want to preface this and caveat the hell out of it by saying the Industrial Revolution was incredible. That's why we're sitting here with a you got a microphone and fucking lights and you, God knows where, you know, you're calling me from Toronto in another country. Like our, our, our grandfathers would have think this is, this is crazy. You know, it was crazy that I could like send a picture to my grandparents over a printer 20 years ago and they would get it like two hours later, maybe or something. They're like, Oh my God, it's magic. Let me show you some magic, right? The magic uh, that we have today is unbelievable that we have. But the point is none of those people in 2023 have to die because we have, industrialized much of the world, but certainly not all of it. And we know the effects that that has caused, and we know how to not do that anymore. The transition to not doing it anymore is going to require an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of retraining and rebuilding. We have to replace every car on the entire road, on the road, everywhere in the world, every heavy truck, you know, we have to cut emissions from shipping, all these different things. We have to basically stop factory farming, all this stuff. But those are just choices we have to make. And there's massive incentives aligned against those historically from power systems that kind of got us here and keep benefiting from them. 
But again, I encourage you to understand that is extremely low hanging fruit. And the if you want to be a capitalist about it, the GDP benefits of 8 million people a year not dying are enormous. But here's the thing, kind of like COVID and long COVID, we can look at the horrific death statistics from COVID in any country or across the world and understand, and this is going to sound callous, those are just the deaths. It's important to understand that an enormous amount of people now have a variety of post-viral symptoms that keep them from going to work. Now, certain capitalists might say, everyone's coming back to the office, that's too bad, or this or that, or you don't have paid leave because you're an hourly job. Does your business suffer or not when people cannot come to work? Does your business and the general economy suffer or not when children cannot go to school and so parents have to stay home because they cannot afford childcare if they can find any at all, whether that's private in your home or some sort of childcare facility? It's important to understand that there are rebound effects and second order effects, if you want to call them, to all of these things. So when we talk about 8 million people a year that die from air pollution, what about all of the kids and all of the people who breathe this shit every day, who have horrible cardiovascular conditions because of it, who are still living, but again, are unable to go to work, or they're an enormous drag on the healthcare system because they're constantly going to the emergency room with chest pains, all of the kids with asthma. The point is, they're choices we're making. And at this point in history, what I like to call, because I'm a nerd, the turn of the tide, we don't have to do that anymore. And we can make choices from the local to the state to the federal to the international level, and those get harder and harder and more complex the further we go to make that better and to feel different and to live differently and to actually live better. Because here's the thing, going back to basically your and my, how old are you, if you don't mind? 35. Great, 35. Going back to our great-grandparents, none of our families basically have ever lived without air pollution, right? We can actually make something that is better than anyone in the past 150 years or so has ever experienced. That's crazy. We can do that. That's the equivalent of when we realized, oops, we probably shouldn't shit in the water that we drink out of or put bodies into it anymore, which seems like pretty low-hanging fruit. But people actually didn't know that or do that for a long time. It was just, that's how we figured out cholera. Somebody finally went to the, I'm going to mangle the story, went to the tap and realized everyone who was drinking out of it was the people getting sick, turned off the tap. And they were like, holy shit, these people aren't getting sick. Maybe we should make water not dirty anymore. And then it was like, maybe we should wash our hands. That's interesting. Holy shit. Seems like obvious low hanging fruit. First of all, my kids still don't do it. Second of all, it changed the entire world. Child mortality is half of what it was 50 years ago. Again, that's a very broad number. It is half. That is crazy. Basically, you used to have like eight kids because there was no birth control and you would expect that five of them would die. Could you fucking imagine if that was still the case? Broadly, that is still the case in large parts of the world, but it doesn't have to be for a huge variety of reasons. And that's what I mean about air pollution. And the great thing is, again, thinking back in sort of the indigenous perspective of how they think about the people who came before them, which is a lot of people, and thinking seven generations ahead. No one you ever knew in your family and that they knew has lived without air pollution. And we can build something, and we know exactly how to build something that actually builds that world. And the personal and healthcare and you know societal and economic benefits of that is almost incalculable. It's almost incalculable. And that's just for the West. When you think about countries like India, which is now the biggest country in the world by population. And you think about China and how Africa is just going to explode over the next 25 years. They are trying to follow the same path we did over the past 100 years industrialized, but they have still massive amounts of energy poverty, right? They're still relying on coal because they're like, you did, why shouldn't we? Which is a really good question. But we can use our resources to make sure they don't have to do that but they get to grow up with GPS. They get to grow up with the internet, all these incredible things that help them industrialize in different ways we can't even imagine. The point I come back to is it's easy to be nihilist about these sort of things and to be a doomer about them. But most of these things, all we've talked about, all I've talked about in the past 10 minutes is air, just the first one, that it doesn't have to be this way. And the exciting ways we get to do 
to fix that and start to chip away at it are incredible. And what's amazing is the fucking best thing about air pollution, which is not a sentence that people use very often, is that when you stop it, I'm not talking about emissions, I'm talking about pollution. When you stop it, it goes away the next day. Everyone might still have health effects, but it goes away the next day. So this is why two of the biggest things we are fighting for here are two of the main things that affect every single neighborhood in America. Again, bonus points if you can name them. <laughs> You're testing me now. Yep. What are the two things that are in every single neighborhood in America? Garbage. <laughs> mm, that's a good one. Sure. Yeah. No. Fuck it. We're going to make that number three. That's a good Fuck one. Fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Polluted air. Okay. Let me back you up. You're on the right track with garbage. Okay. Landfills, but that's the same as garbage. Mm, and they're mm, not in mm. every couple of things. More horizontal, uh, not vertical. Gas stations. I don't know. So when I meant you're in the same thing in horizontal, I was talking about automobiles, post office trucks, and school buses. Okay. I don't think I was going to get that. Okay. They're in every single neighborhood in America every single day, at least once a day, if not twice a day. All of them run on diesel. And all of them, we have studies to show that the air outside the vehicles is awful, which makes on a neighborhood level, the air bad for children and for anyone else. But we actually have studies that also show that the air inside diesel school buses is worse than the air outside. Wow. And we know these children are often in those buses with many of the windows closed. The air quality is worse inside. Guess what? We know how to electrify fucking school buses. And we have been fighting to electrify U.S. post office trucks for the past five years because at first they weren't going to do it and it was too expensive and now they're not. And now we know what the ramifications are, the positive ones of electrifying the two things that are in every neighborhood in America every single day and what that does. Again, we're just still talking about air. What that does when something like COVID comes along and it turns out everybody who's got a cardiovascular disease because of exposure to air pollution in part is more at risk of dying or suffering tremendously. Guess what? We're taking out two of those inputs every day automatically. And that is the low-hanging fruit that, again, you and my grandparents have always had post office trucks, have always had school buses that put that stuff out. We get to build something that is entirely different and cleaner. It is incredible. So that's where we can start and how I try to really approach this kind of thing. That's a great that's a great example you gave there about air quality and how we can change that as opposed to something that is is not as changeable like the water levels that can't because that's sure. realistic down to earth and it shows that there's it's obviously multifaceted and there's some optimism there there's some pessimism realism whatever you want to call it. I want to get to some of the exciting technologies that you think are going to be most useful in fighting climate change as a broad term but before that you did mention earlier on that we're not at the point right now where this is not catastrophic, I think you said, for civilization in terms of we haven't passed the point of no return yet where this is going to be irremediable and homo sapiens are going to die out. Is that correct? Before we start getting to some of the solutions to help us reverse course. 100%. Look, if we, and there's plenty of models out there, and I can give you a thousand of them for your show notes, the most recent stuff, the most accurate stuff from the smartest people we know, but also the most candid and honest people that are out there. So there's a scientist out there named Zeke. He's amazing. He works now for a company called Frontier, which is one of the companies that is sort of fronting the the infrastructure to build carbon removal out of the air with the big fans, right? And one of the things I love about Zeke, besides he's one of the smartest people on the planet, is that again, he is working directly for a company called Frontier and they're managing, you know, when when Stripe and Shopify and Google all pay to, you know, remove a certain amount out of the air with these fans that we've, you know, sort of scaled up and barely tested. What is great is how often Zeke goes online to an enormous influential following and says, none of this means anything if we don't stop new emissions. So for everyone who says, hey, this is great and they're doing this and this, he's like, it doesn't mean anything if we don't stop putting new emissions into the air. And this is another piece of good news, by the way, and I, I wanna make sure we don't miss it. One of the things we do know, like we know that sea level rise is not something we can put back in the box. We are not 100% sure because that's life. We are very, very sure that when we stop new emissions, 
new heating stops too. And that is really exciting. And that is not what we thought about five years ago. So the point is, that is one of those things that's really narrowed and lowered some of those projections is because of the work we've done to scale solar, which is now in many places, one of the cheapest energies of all time, because of the cost of batteries coming down, because we can electrify. So the other reason that electrifying cars, garbage trucks, long distance shipping, all these different things, motorcycles, lawnmowers, leaf blowers, whatever you name it, why those matter so much is because that's 30% of our emissions. And again, if we're talking about climate change being the heat you feel on your back and the water you drink and things like that, like forget the jet stream, right? You can't control that. If we can electrify that 30% of emissions of that's US emissions, right? And we know now that when we stop new emissions, it stops new heating, that's a pretty big incentive. You will not feel hotter as we go along if we do the work to do those things. So yes, there's all those new technologies and things like that. But that is a really important point to, to really understand. And that's really important to know because I wanted to come back to that sort of doomsday scenario because I think as you talk about people making the right choices, I think it's important to dispel that notion that we're in doomsday anyway, because if you feel like it's doomsday, then people are not going to be motivated to make those choices because they're going to say we're 100%. too far gone. And it sounds like we are not too far gone. We have so much to do, but it's easier for people to get behind. Well, yeah, let me actually care more and not be so pessimistic about it because the story isn't over yet and we can write things. It's Yeah, it's nowhere near that. If we even keep going in the direction we're going, which is to say like we're doing some stuff. So Quinn, you've, you've touched on this, but what do you think are some of the most exciting innovations that are coming down the pipeline in terms of ways to combat the situation? Is it ways to remove carbon from the environment in addition to stopping our emissions? Is it the solar power? What are some of the things that you think have the most promise that are being explored? So yeah, let me answer that by saying that none of the new sort of technologies, however proven they might be, matter if there aren't the right people in office in the local, state, and federal and international level to support those with both regulatory apparatus for the bad stuff and incentives for the good stuff. This is one of the great things that the IRA has done, the Inflation Reduction Act. The amount of money that is going into manufacturing for clean energy, for batteries, for all kinds of solar infrastructure in the United States from panels to inverters is already after passing one year ago, probably going to be three times as much as it was. Because what's crazy about it is on the industrial side, it's uncapped, which is amazing. So as much as I'm excited about things like, again, you want to talk about another huge chunk of emissions in our homes and buildings, heat pumps, stoves, hot water heaters, all kinds of stuff like that. They're enormous replacing them in every home in America while we still have to build 4 million new homes so we have fewer unhoused people is going to be enormous work. But what an incredible work of our lifetime that we get to do that. And now the massive incentives and rebates and tax credits are there for us to do that. We have to train, kind of like World War II, about 500,000 new electricians just to be able to accomplish that work. But that is exciting to me. You've got money going into homes to electrify everything. An electrified home is so much more comfortable. It's cheaper. It's more reliable. Your home runs on a battery. Induction stoves are fucking awesome. Your water boils in like 10 seconds. And if you have kids, you know how amazing that is. We have all these little things that we touch and feel every day, but we also have big things like core precedent um, that are coming. Um, EVs at every level from two wheels in Southern Asia and in Africa and four wheelers and big trucks are truly selling like crazy. You'll see headlines that there's a lot of these things on the lot still that they're piling up. Part of that, again, is because there's rules in a lot of states that car dealers basically, that these cars cannot be sold directly, meaning they cannot be sold online or whatever it might be. So we have to start addressing with that, which means having the right people in office so that we can incentivize, get these things on the road. We're going to build a million new chargers. That's going to change the infrastructure. That's going to be fantastic. We have to make them work better and be more reliable. That's fine. Batteries and solar are down 90% from what they were. Solar in many places is one of the cheapest 
energies of all time, which is pretty incredible because coal was pretty fucking cheap and we didn't measure the externalities of how it made us sick. Solar does not do that. They're leveling it out now. And now we are competing for resources and manufacturing, but we also have to fix things like permitting reform because we need to build 75,000 miles of new high voltage transmission lines to actually connect all that stuff to each other. And right now we're just kind of deciding not to do that. So that's something we need to do. We know that we can make children healthier by reducing pollution, which means they get better sleep, which means they're educated better, which means they contribute to society better in the future. Again, in 200 years, all we have ever done is make kids sick. We get the chance to not do that. And when we talk about technological revolutions, that's kind of fucking incredible. I talked to a woman on the podcast, I don't know, three months ago, young woman. And when I'm clear, when I say I barely understand what she's talking about because she's so much smarter than me, (laughs) I want to be honest. She has figured out, and who knows if this will like scale and work. And I'm not kidding here. (laughs) She has figured out how to use sound cannons strapped to fleets of autonomous drones to push back wildfires. And so when we talk about holy shit type stuff, that's the one where I was like, no, listen, this is great. She, I don't know. She was like 21. I was, I don't even remember being 21. But that's the type of stuff, that's adaptation stuff that's important to do. That's not solving the problem. But if we can make kids not sick, if we can give them better public school educations and get them to school on buses that don't make them sick and make sure they get their vaccines and make sure they have childcare so their parents aren't stressed and people have time, parents have time to read to them. Can you fucking imagine the world we can build with these kids? Like, holy shit, we have to do our part. But what if we just for the first time in 200 years just purposefully didn't make kids sick through food or air or water or whatever it might be. So those are the type of innovations that compound and compound and compound on each other that are so exciting. The International Energy Authority said this week they think fossil fuel demand is going to peak this decade, which is amazing because usually they're super conservative. Great. They're going to pivot from automobiles and planes to plastics and textiles. We got to start regulating that as much as we can. So the point is, we can do things that we've never known how to do, the effect they have, and we've never seen the positive implications of them before, right? For somebody listening to this, and I mean, you've already made very compelling arguments, especially the notion that you spoke about, about keep your kids healthy, which resonates with a lot of people. Somebody leaving this podcast who says, okay, I hear everything you're saying. Ultimately, why should I care about climate change? A lot of the listeners to the show live in Canada, the States and, and Europe places that are doing pretty well, obviously feeling the effects of climate change. What's your message to them if they were to ask the question, okay, ultimately, like, why should I come out of this podcast saying I care about this? I come pretty late and very informally to the school of, do you know who Paul Farmer is? Mm -mm. So there's a book I'll send you. It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And Paul Farmer was the founder of an organization that still exists and is wonderful called Partners in Health. And Paul Farmer spent most of his life being an incredible genius teacher at various medical schools throughout Boston. But most of it, the part he really cared about was doing hands-on medical work in Haiti, which is in a pretty tough spot and has been and is even tougher than it's ever been from earthquakes and hurricanes and a variety of other colonialistic issues. And Paul's general ethos that underpinned everything that, again, I came to kind of late, but really matters to me because I think it united a lot of things to me is that no one life matters more or is valued more than another. And so it's really easy, but pretty ignorant at this point to live in the U.S. or Canada or whatever it might be or Europe and say, I'm living okay. These things aren't affecting me. Half of Canada has been on fire for about six months. It's not going great. The air quality is a nightmare. I'm happy to send links to anyone who is excited or they can just read the newsletter or listen to the podcast about what wildfire smoke does to your lungs, what it does to pregnant people, what it does to babies, right? To forming lungs in young people. That's happening across the Western rich world, whether we like it or not. There's not a lot we can do about that. We're going to see migration to our countries because we are better off, that you cannot even imagine because these other places are so much hotter because they cannot grow and farm and eat their own food because the water's gone bad, all of which increases strife and corruption, which means they're going to try to come here. 
And one, we should just be prepared for that on the surface. And we're not in any way close, though Canada is doing a much better job than we are right now. But two, it's the right thing to do. And three, I, I have a big problem with suffering. I look like this. I'm a 40-year-old, healthy white person, white man, born straight white man, born in America in 1982. I have never been oppressed. I've never had my voice taken from me. It's really important that we look outside our own kids or our nephews or our nieces or our students to understand that every child deserves the same shot and these basic elements that you did such a great job naming in order. A clean and accessible version of those is due to every child and that that's not that difficult to do if we all actually stand up and try to do something in the steps to do that from either running for local office yourself or school board or supporting those people or campaigning for them, whatever it might be, find, finding the winnable fights in the places that matter the most so that you can affect the most lives is just the greatest good you can do in your time here. When you sign up for a newsletter, which I'm not sitting here explicitly reporting, but this is something that means a lot to me. You get a little welcome note a second later and it says, hey, drag us to your inbox. All that basic stuff I'm sure everyone sees when you sign up for something. But at the bottom, I ask a question and it's, why are you here? And not everyone answers, right? But ever since I sort of framed it as science for people who give a shit, the number, the volume, the variety of, of people who give a shit for one reason or another because they're a university president or and they run an endowment or they work at a hospital that might close or that is full of money because it's a research hospital or they're a third grade teacher or they're a grandparent or they're a student or they're a lawyer. The people that come here and tell these stories to me, a stranger, and reply and say, I need to know what to teach my third graders. I need to know how to help my grandkids because I feel responsible and I can't tell them that. I lost someone to COVID. I think I have found a way to fight wildfires with fucking sound cannons on drones. Whatever it might be, <laughs> it is the most inspiring thing. And the best thing I realized I could do, we never really like purposely tried to grow this thing, but now we really are is there are so many more people that give a shit. And that is what is so inspiring for so many different reasons. The least we can do is find ways to get in front of them, to f tell them, hey, there's more people like you out there and we're here and we're going to give you measurable, reputable ways that you can understand what's going on so you don't feel so overwhelmed and impotent, but also so that you can do something about it and share it with someone because we're social and because we all need to just feel better. Everyone doesn't feel good after the past few years and that's really understandable. But you can drive an enormous difference and you can make a change in the heat we feel on our backs and the water that kids drink and the air that we all breathe. And it can be much better. It has never really been that way. And that is what's so incredible about there's going to be suffering from sea level rise. There are already so many people suffering from hunger and from super processed foods, whatever it might be from lead pipes. But we have never really seen the side of getting this right, of choosing to do the low hanging fruit that can make just people healthier on a day-to-day -day basis, but also when the big stuff comes, whether it's another virus or it's another storm. We have never taken the chance to be as baseline healthy and as robust as we can be, which, by the way, then lets us reach for that higher technological Star Trek level shit that really takes us to a place we can't even imagine. Well, Quint, it's been super inspiring hearing you speak and your passion about this and your practical advice. And I think the most important thing you said was really just near the end there about why should people give a shit? Because every life is equal and everybody matters and you don't like seeing people suffer. And on the one hand, that's obvious. But on the other hand, it's something that we all need reminding of on a fairly regular basis when it isn't at our front doorstep. So it's unfortunate that it takes something like wildfires in Canada for it to be closer to home for me to realize, wow, 
global warming's terrible, look at what's happening. But sometimes that is more impactful in affecting the way we move forward. But it's also just the reason we have conversations like this on this show, so that we don't need to rely on bad things to happen in order to have change, but we can just have conversations to remind us that we need to have change. Quinn, where can people learn more about important, not important science for people who give a shit? And how can they access your incredible content? Oh, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. And I I hope that this makes people just feel like they want to get involved in some way. And that's the biggest thing is we help people answer the question, what can I do? Because it's easy to feel pretty lost in that. And we really pride ourselves on not only helping you understand it without getting too nitty gritty, but also helping you join organizations and people and places that are already doing incredible work because there's so many people doing incredible work. So if you go to importantnotimportant.com slash subscribe, you'll right there, just put in your email. We don't collect any other information about you because I don't give a shit about any of that. We're really big on AI ethics uh, and data privacy in general, which I didn't even get into. They can find out more there. There's a link to our podcast there. We've got almost uh, about 180 type conversations, scientists, senators, farmers, students, whatever. We talk about maternal health. We talk about ocean health. We talk about all these different things that are really affecting, but it is incredible humans who, as we say, are working on the front lines of the future. And if it doesn't make you want to go do something or join something, then it's not the place for you and that's okay. But it's 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 pretty amazing. And the newsletter is pretty great. On Monday, you get the news, you get sort of a potpourri of our action steps, as we call them, and some other important things that we think can help you. And usually on Friday or Saturday, you get a longer essay from me helping you either think through one thing specifically or sort of a broader understanding of a lot of what we talked about today, sort of the the ethics, the philosophies, the the mechanisms behind the systems that we're dealing with and why you should care and what you can what you can do about them. So yeah, that's it, well, my friend. That's fantastic. Quinn Emmett, thank you so much for joining me. I will put that in the episode notes, but I will myself go to importantnotimportant.com slash subscribe for your excellent newsletter and to access your podcast. And it's been a privilege having you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I really appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time to talk about this stuff. Thank you for your whole show is just asking people really big questions from, from you know, literally your, was your first one was the nuclear bomb, right? I mean, <laughs> that stuff matters, right? Why do we do the things do we do and, and what happens afterwards and what can we learn from it to do things differently? And that really, really matters. So I appreciate you sharing all that with the world. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Check out Quinn Emmett, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 